Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, April 10th by Tim Voth, our pastor of family life. This is the Palm Sunday Sermon in our Easter 2022 celebration. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. Hey, I'm Tim, the Family Life Pastor, and today is Palm Sunday, and we're starting into a new short sermon series we've entitled Easter, Don't Miss It. And this sermon series title has a few layers of meaning, uh, the first being quite literal, uh, Easter is coming up, don't miss it, show up here on Easter Sunday. Uh, There's things we're doing as a church, and so we're also doing Maundy Thursday, so come out uh, to these services, we'd love to see you here. Um, So that's the first layer. The second layer of this sermon series title is that, you know, a lot of other holidays like Christmas, they have um, a lot of build-up to it. You know, there's a, there's a festive spirit about it, and there's, there's build-up, and there's excitement over a long period of time, uh, but Easter has the tendency to just kind of come and go, and so we can kind of miss it as we don't make much of the holiday itself, and as a church, we've been trying to do our best to not miss it. We've been doing things like uh, little kids' um, object lessons, uh, at the in the in-person service to with a little object from the Easter story to help them understand the story as we lead up to Easter. We're doing Maundy Thursday, uh, Easter Sunday celebration, and we're doing a, a sermon series as well. So we're trying our best as a church to not miss Easter. Uh, but the third layer of meaning of the sermon series title is the one that I mainly want to focus on, which is that, you know, we can kind of come to Easter and, and think through it, but we kind of miss the significance of what Easter actually meant and what it might mean for us individually. And so we don't want to miss the significance of Easter for our lives. And you know, we can miss things all the time, and it's only in hindsight that we really understand what took place and what it meant. I think of um, Sherlock Holmes. Maybe you've uh, read the novels or seen uh, uh, films or TV shows about him. There's one that BBC made, which I really like. It's a TV show of Sherlock Holmes, and all throughout it, it's the same theme. There's always um, bits of evidence scattered around, and no one else can see what's happening, and then it takes the genius Sherlock Holmes to show up and put all the pieces together and use his deductive skills, and he understands it all, and he comes to a conclusion, and you as the audience, you're usually left in the dark. You don't know really what's happening um, until the end of the episode when it all becomes clear, oh, this is what's going on, And then finally, you can see uh, all the pieces and how it all made sense and how it all worked together to make a cohesive story. I think we do that in uh, in other areas of our life, too. I know I do that sometimes. Uh, Even in relationships, you know, there's all these signs that someone might not be uh, too happy. And then, you know, you say, oh, how are you doing? And they say, I'm fine. And you're like, okay, great, you're fine. And uh, it's only in hindsight when maybe an argument occurs or you kind of things bubble to the surface that you see, oh, They actually weren't fine. And then all the signs leading up to that moment, you can kind of see in hindsight. And so I think we do that a lot. I think we do that all the time. Um, And the same thing happened to to the disciples with Easter. Easter was happening before their eyes. There were all these hints of what was going to happen and what was happening and who Jesus was, but they completely missed it. They missed it until after the resurrection when they started putting all the puzzle pieces together in hindsight. And the the great thing, the good news about Easter right now is that we're living post-resurrection. We can see with hindsight, you know, God's big secret is out. At Easter, he's made it manifest. He's made it known. The the hidden things are revealed 
God's feelings and thoughts, they aren't hidden and we don't have to guess. They're on full display. God's plan is knowable. Jesus came into the world to save us from sin and from eternal death, and he did it by dying on a cross and raising from the dead and conquering sin and death so that you can live freely forever with him. That's it. That's what we don't want to miss. That's what God has revealed and made known so that we won't miss it. And here on Palm Sunday, what I want to focus on, the main thing that I want to focus on that I don't want us to miss is that when we catch who Jesus truly is, the humble, gentle king, then we can embrace him and worship him as the one who has the answer to our greatest need. All right, so Palm Sunday, what is it? Well, it's, it's the Sunday before Easter when we remember what is often called Jesus's triumphal entry, which is when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to crowds of people shouting and cheering him on, uh, waving palm branches, so Palm Sunday, and putting them on the road in front of him as he walked. And it's one of the few stories that's found in all four of the Gospels. You know, there, there were four accounts of Jesus' life written, kind of four historical narratives written each by a different author. Um, and they each have their own nuances in the stories. Dif- some, some stories that they'll tell and some Gospels won't tell other stories. And they're all kind of creating this picture of who Jesus is. And sometimes they all overlap with, with a story about Jesus And uh, leading up to Holy Week, there's a lot more stories that start overlapping between all four Gospels. But even in the same stories, they're bringing out unique elements of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And uh, a book that I'd really recommend for understanding this a little bit more is called Four Gospels, One Jesus by Richard Burridge. It really helps us understand that these authors were painting unique pictures of who Jesus was to help us understand all the different facets of, of who Jesus was. So now, interestingly, all the the Gospels slow down at Holy Week. They're kind of speeding along, and then they stretch out the time in Holy Week. They start to narrow in on the significance of the one week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. And the beginning of that week is where this story happens of Palm Sunday. And so I'm going to be mainly looking at Matthew's version, but I'll draw on other ones too. And so in Matthew's version, it's found in Matthew 21, verse 1 to 11, and it goes like this. As they, the disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, about a kilometer away from Jerusalem, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt at the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey on the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, so what's going on here? There's tons of layers happening in this story all at once, and I just want to set it up so that we can grasp a bit more of the picture of what is actually happening here. So up till this point 
in Jesus' ministry, his disciples had been following him around, and sometimes the, the crowd size would vary, and sometimes he'd um, be ministering to crowds, and other times he'd kind of pull away uh, with just his kind of chosen inner circle. And quite often he was secretive about him, who he was and the miracles that he was doing. And if someone did get healed or he did do a miracle, he'd go, shh, don't, don't tell anyone about this, okay? And, and sometimes uh, when the disciples realized, you, it's, you're the Lord, you're the Messiah, he'd go, okay, that's great, you understand that? Please don't tell anyone. And so there's one time even in John's gospel where all the disciples gather around him and they want to make him king. And he kind of just hides and slips away. And his disciples must have wondered what that's all about. Um, but now here in, on Palm Sunday, he's finally making himself fully known to the world, really, uh, to, to the, his followers and the religious leaders. And his disciples must have finally been overjoyed. Finally, he's letting everyone know who he is. And it's even the week of Passover, so there's thousands of pilgrims going to Jerusalem, and he's making a massive scene. There's a spectacle taking place, and it says the whole city is stirred up. And so now people can't miss him, even if they try. He's, he's making himself fully known. This is his time. He's there. He's declaring himself as king for the whole world to see. And you can tell there's a great excitement in the air as the crowds have come following him, ushering him into the city, and also, as it says in John's Gospels, that, that the crowd another crowd came from Jerusalem out to meet him and usher him into the city with shouts of acclamation. Jesus is no longer staying quiet, but he says, if people stay quiet, then the stones are going to cry out. Like this is his time. It's finally here and everyone is amazed and everyone is celebrating. Why? Because the king had finally come. Finally, their hopes and aspirations for Jerusalem and their nation would be fulfilled because Rome at this time was actually occupying Jerusalem, and Rome, or Jerusalem was under the, um, the authority of the Roman Empire. And I think people were wanting to be liberated from the Roman Empire, and they thought, this king is here. Finally, we're going to be liberated from Rome, and there was so much hope in that thought. And it's interesting, this was actually done um, centuries earlier by someone else. Back around 160 BC, Jerusalem was occupied by the Seleucid Empire, which was a Greek state. And there was a Jewish priest named Judah Maccabee that led a successful revolt against this empire. So same kind of thing, same kind of sentiment. And when he did this, his followers entered the city with him, waving palm branches in celebration before him, right before him and his family became kings. And so there's that same kind of sentiment that these people are feeling. Maybe this is another Judah Maccabee. Maybe... Um, he's going to be like him and save us once again, not from the Seleucid Empire, but maybe from the Roman Empire. And on top of that, here the, in this story, the people are shouting Hosanna, which means something like, God, save us now, save us. And there's lots of shouts. And if you combine all the Gospels at this point, it sounds something like this. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And you can just picture this crowd shouting all these different acclamations and, and please save us, save us. And the gospel writers just kind of picking out different ones. And there's this crowd shouting Hosanna. And they're really actually quoting mainly from Psalm 118. Uh, this was where it says, you know, Hosanna, God save us. And they kind of add some things here and there, but Psalm 118 was um, the very last psalm 
in what was called the Hallel, which was when the Jews would sing through Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And it was sung annually at Passover, which is what time it was. It was a royal procession psalm. And when they read it, everyone would wave their lalab, which was a bouquet of willow, myrtle, and palm branches. So that starts to create a picture, right? It's this royal procession. The king has come. People are laying down their cloaks like a red carpet. And there's even um, sometimes when conquering kings were returning to the city, they would send out a procession of people, an entourage from the city to welcome them and usher them back in. So there's all this picture of royal procession. The king has come to deal with their main problem and their main solution. Their main problem was Roman occupation. And the main solution was that he was going to bring um, Rome down and conquer. He was a revolutionary coming in the spirit of Judah the Maccabean and the spirit of the Messiah himself with miraculous power to boot. Okay, so that's where the crowd saw, that's what the crowd saw in all of this. Freedom, celebration, liberation, a king, a priest, a Messiah. But it obviously got the attention of other people too. And I think they saw a pretty different picture insurrectionist, troublemaker, political destabilizer, threat, usurper, dangerous. And it made them suspicious at best and murderous at worst. And I think if we ask the question, why was Jesus killed? There's a lot of layers to that too. You know, we could simply say, well, Jesus was such a loving and kind person and the world is so bad and evil that people don't want that much love and so they wanted to take him out. Okay, that's maybe one layer. Another layer could be um, the Jews thought he was blaspheming by saying he's God, and so they had to kill a blasphemer, and so they're going to kill him because of that. That's another layer. We could go really big picture and say it was God's plan from the foundation of the earth to send Jesus uh, to be killed on the cross, and so it was God's plan. That's why they killed him. That's a valid layer too. But one of the things that I think sometimes we miss on a very human level is that Jesus was killed because of political stunts like this. I mean, think about it. I don't think we grasp the whole picture of, of what's going on here because it was so long ago, but think of, like, imagine Chilliwack and someone riding into town with a huge crowd behind them saying, Hail the new mayor of Chilliwack. Yay, the new mayor is here. Save us. It's so awful here. Save us, new mayor. Like, that would cause a bit of ruffling of the feathers, hey? But... Now picture it a little more intense, which is maybe more accurate to the story. Jerusalem is the capital. Imagine going to Ottawa. You've got a huge procession of people. And there's one man, or one person. And everyone is saying of this person, Hail the new prime minister. Yay, the new prime minister is here. Save us, new prime minister. We need you, new prime minister. Hail the new prime minister. Blessed by God is the new prime minister. Like, that would cause a scene, don't you think? And now imagine if that same guy... Um, just stuck around town for a week. Don't you think that the authorities and the higher-ups would keep an, a, a very close eye on this guy and try to figure out who is this guy, where did he come from, what's his plan, and would probably be mainly thinking, we've got to think of a way to get this guy out of here. He's causing a, a scene. He's causing a ruckus. And so that's probably what would have been happening. And, and you would think there'd be tension in the air because this can only go one of two ways. Either... Um, this guy really will be um, forced to be prime minister by the sheer will of the people and just completely pass the democratic process, uh, or they're going to have to take him out. It's only one of two things. And so 
there's this tension in the air. What's going to happen? Who is this and what's going to happen? And I think you can start to feel that narrative tension now in, our, in Palm Sunday story. What's going to happen and who is this guy? But the interesting thing is that there were some key details in this whole event that would have made, that would have made a key observer, a keen observer, uh, you know, a detective type, uh, kind of second guess what's happening and um, kind of think twice about it. And uh, there's a book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. And I would recommend it to you. I read it a little after I came to faith, and it really helped strip away some preconceived ideas I had about who Jesus was, and it helped me understand more truly who he, and more fully who he is. And in this book, Philip Yancey talks about the triumphal entry, and I love the perspective he brings. He says this, I imagine a Roman officer galloping up to check on the disturbance. He has attended processions in Rome where they do it right. The conquering general sits in a chariot of gold with stallions straining at the reins and wheel spikes flashing in the sunlight. Behind him, officers in polished armor display the banners captured from the vanquished enemies. At the rear comes the ragtag procession of slaves and prisoners in chains, living proof of what happens to those who defy Rome. In Jesus' triumphal entry, the adoring crowd makes up the ragtag procession. The lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. When the officer looks for the object of their attention, he spies a forlorn figure, weeping, riding on no stallion or no chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey. A borrowed coat draped across its backbone to serve as his saddle. Yes, there's a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome and not the kind that impressed the crowds in Jerusalem for long either. What manner of king is this? What kind of king indeed? And that's the question, isn't it? And Matthew brings it out in his account. They all ask, who is this? And he doesn't quite seem to be a conquering king. He has no warhorse armor or weapons or army. He doesn't quite seem to be an insurrectionist. I mean, he's riding on a, on a baby donkey, for goodness sake. Who is this? And the people answer, and it's partially true, I guess, but it's not even close to a full understanding. They say, he's the prophet from Nazareth. And so, it's kind of, it's true. But is that all, though? Who is this really, and why does it matter to everyone, and why does it matter to you? To get a clearer picture, we need to look at what Jesus himself was claiming about himself. So let's start with the donkey. What's that all about? I went to uh, the Greater Vancouver Zoo uh, on my vacation a few weeks ago with my family. And we love the zoo, and sometimes you go there and all the animals are asleep or hiding. But this time we went, it was awesome. There were tons of the powerful, majestic, awesome animals out. We saw the lion, and it was, uh, it was roaring, and that can make your heart just stop with how powerful it sounds. Uh, there was this rhino fully out and just playing with this massive tree trunk with its horn and just smashing it around like it was a twig. There was uh, the grizzly bear also had this tree trunk that it was heaving up onto its shoulder and hauling around. And the hippo was opening its math massive mouth and you could see inside and it had its big, powerful jaws. There's all these animals. And then there's the donkey. The little weird looking donkey and we walk up to it and it happened to be feeding time. And so the donkey's all excited that it's feeding time. So it starts making its kind of weird noise. And uh, it just is kind of cute and, and, you know, adorable looking and kind of quaint. And it just kind of looks like the horse's weird second cousin. You know, it's like this, this weird animal that 
is kind of nice and you just kind of smile and, oh, that's nice. And then you walk by it to go look at the other cooler animals. But that's the animal that Jesus chose to ride. He chose to ride on a donkey and not just a full-grown donkey, but a baby donkey that no one has ever ridden before. I mean, his feet must have been like dragging on the ground and it must have been zigzagging all over the place. You know, it was a weird scene actually. And now think back to my, the Ottawa um, uh, scenario I was talking about. Imagine that whole scene, but the person in front is like riding on a little tricycle. Like it just is this weird juxtaposed image of this king, yay, hail the king, but he's on this strange transportation that he's chosen. Uh, And he's chosen it intentionally though. It has to do with an Old Testament prophecy. He wanted to show everyone he was fulfilling. And if you look at the quote from Zechariah 9.9, it says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think it's an important practice. Whenever you see the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, just flip back there. Just find what, where it is. Usually in the footnotes, you can see what it's quoting. Go back to the Old Testament, read the quote, and just kind of read the context and try to understand what's going on in the Old Testament at that point and just kind of bask in it, slow down, soak it in and understand the context there. Because usually when, when an author is quoting the Old Testament in the New Testament, he's expecting his reader to understand the whole context of what's going on back there and have that come to mind. And so just, just briefly, um, Zechariah, in, in his book, he was anticipating someone who would come in the spirit of a priest and a king. But which king was coming to them? Was it Zerubbabel? Yes, back in their context, it was Zerubbabel who was going to come and help Jerusalem. He's kind of the framework. But one day it would be fulfilled by someone else. And which priest was going to come? Joshua? Yes, but also someone else. And so the picture that Zechariah has in his mind is compressed and harmonized into a king who's also a priest in one person who will one day bring full peace. In other words, the Messiah. And if you read the very next verse in Zechariah, it says this about the Messiah. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth as for you because of my blood of the covenant of my covenant with you I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit so in the spirit of the messiah as zechariah sees him he's a humble king that will not make war but will make wars cease he will not just bring peace to the jews but to the whole world and he will not spill any blood except his own to set the prisoners free And so the image of who Jesus was claiming to be by this act starts to become clearer and clearer. He's the king and he came to do something. And not only so, but the context of their shouts. So going back again to Psalm 118, they're shouting Hosanna. It's of the Messiah. And listen to some of the context here in Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. So that's the Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in his hand, join in the festal procession 
up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. And so Jesus would have had this context in mind and he just let them shout it freely. Yes, yes, I will save you. Yes, I am your king. Yes, I will bless you. Yes, I am your God. And so keep all that in mind, uh, the royal procession, who Jesus is claiming to be with the donkey and, and the shouting, and then think of where he's going. It's the celebration of Passover, where God's people remember that the blood of the lamb took away their sins and protected them from death. And so all of this points to who Jesus was and the main problem that he came to deal with and the main solution that he gave. You know, their main problem wasn't political. It wasn't who was unfairly treating them. And your main problem, it isn't political. It isn't circumstances. It isn't the problems in the context you find yourself in. Our problems are real and God very much cares about our problems, but they aren't the final problem. They aren't the main problem of your life. They aren't the main problem that has plagued human beings from the beginning, which is we all sin and we all die. That's it. Sorry to say, but we all sin and we all die. That's our main problem as humans. And see, we spend our lives focusing on the stressful, you know, parts of our life, the annoying and granted very real problems of everyday life. You know, like, I don't like my boss and my hip hurts and we don't have enough income and I don't like what the government's up to and there's injustice in the world and I'm not happy and my sink is dripping and, and my kids are driving me crazy and all these things that we focus on and we stress about. And, and it's not that God doesn't care about these things. He really, really does. But if we are really creatures that were created for eternity then those problems all occupy like the point zero 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 one to infinity like point aspect of our lives. And then there's eternity to think about. And, you know, God helps us with those problems as well. And he's very real and he, and he cares about them. But Jesus came to deal with the eternal problem, the main problem of humanity. And he came to bring the main solution that we really need. Jesus, the humble king, he came to deal with the main problem and everyone missed it. Everyone missed it. And we miss it. I miss it. See, I think we want war horse Jesus. We want the king who comes into our kingdom and, and starts making real change. We want the, the knight in shining armor who marches into our lives triumphantly and slays every foe in our path and destroys every evil force aimed at us and changes all the painful and hard things in our lives and wins every battle for us and knocks down every leader and every person we don't like. And don't we want that, Jesus? I know I do. I want the Hosanna. Yay, praise you. You're here. I want that, Jesus. I want that king. We want the one that saves us, but saves us from what? See, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and so he gets there. The king is there. He's finally in Jerusalem. And then things start to transpire that I think make all of those cheerful, expectant, hopeful people who were once shouting Hosanna start to kind of second-guess their enthusiasm. Okay, so he's not kicking out Rome. In fact, he's saying his kingdom is actually of a different world altogether. And pretty soon, things start to take a turn for the worst. He's not, he's not even this like diplomatic leader who comes in peace and, and starts making changes through you know, his words and... and, and changes the political scene through a diplomatic process, which I think they would have wanted. They didn't just necessarily want a conquering king. They wanted 
some sort of change, even if it's brought about peacefully, that would be even better. But he's not even doing that. He's actually succumbing to the evil powers of the world. He's, he's not changing things. He's actually being arrested and captured and, and beaten. And now the crowd that once shouted Hosanna is actually shouting, crucify him. And, you know, granted, it might not be the, all the same people that were shouting Hosanna. It might be none of them. or might be some of them that are in the same crowd that are shouting crucify him. That might be the religious leaders. But at very least, they're silent. I mean, where was that Hosanna crowd when everyone was shouting crucify him? They were not there or they were there and complicit and just kind of silent. And now, instead of a mighty conquering king, we have a, a weak, pathetic, naked nobody just dying like some petty felon as the crowds disperse, confused and disappointed. They don't want that king. They might have wanted a humble king, but they don't want a humiliated king. And so the crowd missed it, they missed it, and we can miss it too. And you know, I think uh, of, of Batman in the movie The Dark Knight. There's a scene where Batman, he kind of becomes a scapegoat intentionally. Um, he takes the blame for something that he didn't actually do in order to take on himself all of the anger and disappointment of the city. Um, but he does it in order to save the city, and no one really understands that. They make him the villain, uh, but he's actually intentionally doing that to help the city. And Commissioner Gordon, he says this. Uh, he says it of Harvey Dent, but I think he actually says it of Batman. He says this. He's not the hero we deserve, but the hero we need. And I think that's true of Jesus, you know. They definitely got better than they deserve. They got way more than they could have ever wanted. They just couldn't see it. I mean, it's true. It would be insane to expect of a political leader or anyone in royalty to save us from the main problem of humanity, which is death. Like, we don't expect that of our politicians. Um, so it would have been crazy for them to do that. Um, but that's exactly it. Jesus wasn't the king that they wanted, but the king that they desperately needed. There was no red carpet, just old cloaks, no horse, just a donkey, no golden crown, just one of thorns, not lifted up on a throne, but lifted up on a Roman execution rack. And he's the humble king, and he's the humble king that you need. And Jesus never made much of crowds. They're too ambivalent. You know, one minute they're, they're praising you and they're all excited with you, and then the next minute they're kind of leaving you all alone. Or, or one minute they're, you know, um, with you, and the next minute they're not. One minute they're praising you, one minute they're cursing you. But he looked through the crowd. He didn't care about all that. He looked through the crowd to the individual, to Lazarus, to Nicodemus, to Peter, to Pilate, to the thief on the cross. That's where the meaningful interactions happen. And now he looks to you. Who is Jesus to you? Maybe you're like the crowd, kind of half understanding who Jesus is. But when he reveals himself as the humble king, not conquering in all of your circumstances, but rather has conquered your sin and death, do you still want him as your king? And I think that's the call to each of us individually on Palm Sunday. It's easy to shout Hosanna when everything's going well, when God's winning our battles, and when we have this hope and expectation for what God is about to do in our lives. He's about to save us from something. But when our life is in shambles and God is silent, is it enough that he came to deal with your sin and your death? 
Is it enough that he came to give you life forever that transcends this life and makes up for all the trouble in this life that you could ever experience? Can we shout Hosanna when he's not who we thought he would be? When he's dying on a cross. And he calls to you and he says, will you worship me as the humble king? Because no one else can deal with your main problem, but Jesus can. He died the death you deserve in your place and he was raised to life so that you can be one day too. Your death was his and his life can be yours. And he calls you to trust in him either for the first time or for the millionth time if you already know him to just recenter on that truth. And I think that's the power of Palm Sunday. You know, Jesus knew what was coming to him. And now we, post-resurrection, we can see it too in these stories. It's not hidden. The secret is out. It all made sense when he rose. It's like it says in John's account. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Oh, no king can conquer death. Everything makes sense now. That's what he was doing. That's what he was planning all along. All the pieces start to to make sense. And we have an opportunity to call him king, not king of a country, not king of a nation, king of all creation, ruler of nations, forgiver of your sins, Lord of your life, victor over your impending death, resurrector of your body, king of our eternal home forever. That's the king we don't deserve, but we desperately need. And you can know him forever. You can be one of his ragtag followers. You can be the worst of sinners. You can be a nobody. Because Jesus became sin and he became a nobody to God so that you could become somebody to him. And so when we catch who Jesus truly is, the humble, gentle king, then we can embrace him and worship him as the one who has the answer to our greatest need. And so I'd like to leave us with some discussion questions before we go. So number one, in what ways did Jesus defy and surpass all of the expectations of the people around him? Number two, what does it mean for our own lives that Jesus isn't the conquering warhorse mounted king, but rather the humble, gentle, donkey riding king? And number three, why is it so important to praise God even in the challenging seasons of life? So I hope you uh, enjoy discussing those questions and I hope you have a good Easter. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.